Welcome to MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue, and we're coming to you from the campus of Middle Tennessee State University in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Danielle Shelton is a doctoral candidate in public history from Chattanooga. She has conducted research on oral histories and deeds surrounding Red Clay Historic State Park in southern Bradley County near Cleveland, Tennessee. The territory that now is part of the park was the site of the last Cherokee national government prior to the forced western migration of the Cherokee beginning in 1838. Danielle will tell us what she discovered through her research after this. Here are some of the headlines making news at mtsunews.com, the university's news and information website. Results from the most recent Tennessee Consumer Outlook survey indicate consumers continue to be optimistic about the overall U.S. economy. The quarterly Tennessee Consumer Outlook Index remained relatively unchanged and positive, dipping only two points to 167 this month from 169 in March. Overall, consumers in Middle Tennessee hold the most positive views of the economy, followed by those in East Tennessee and West Tennessee, respectively. The current online survey of 630 Tennessee consumers was conducted June 3rd through 8th and has a 4% margin of error. And consumers were also asked about their views on the news media and the politicians they cover. When asked to identify the one politician they most trust, President Donald Trump was by far the most often mentioned politician by Tennesseans. However, an almost equal number said they did not trust any politician. Consumers also have a general lack of trust when it comes to news media outlets. Although Fox News was the most often mentioned television news outlet consumers trust, more consumers said they did not trust any television news media outlet. This general lack of trust is even more evident when it comes to online news sources. Of those who cited a trusted online source, CNN and Fox News were the most often mentioned. For MTSU News at any time, go to mtsunews.com. Welcome, Danielle. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. Uh, thanks for having me. What exactly was the focus of your research? Well, um, I'm just now really getting into the, the actual dissertation process at this point. But um, I'm doing a cultural landscape report on the park and the surrounding community. So, um, so far, I've been studying red clay for over a year now. Um, I have done the cultural landscape uh, inventory and assessment for the National Park Service on the park itself. But um, for this report, it's going to be broadened quite a bit. What is the cultural landscape assessment? Is that a particular history term? Well, it, it's something that the National Park Service wanted uh, done. And, and what it is, you go through and you're looking at a site, um, you're evaluating the uh resources on the site, so the buildings, the trails, anything like that, um, as well as writing the history of the site itself. How did you come to decide on this particular subject? Well, um, my husband and I moved to Chattanooga about five years ago. Um, we're not from Tennessee originally. And one of the very first places I was mentioning to a co-worker that um, you know, I was interested in, in Native American history, and she was like, you've got to go see red clay. And I'm like, well, what is that? Mm -hmm. And it was one of the first places I visited in Tennessee as a tourist, mm -hmm. and I fell in love with it. And um, it just kind of 
everything fell into place, mm-hmm. <laughs> honestly. Had you read about the Trail of Tears and all that? Sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, did your proximity to Red Clay have anything to do with it? I mean, you living in Chattanooga and the park being in Cleveland, I mean, it was pretty convenient, right? Well, I mean, it's still about 40 minutes from where I live, but that's mm-hmm. a lot better than the hour and 45 minutes to commute here. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's relatively close to home, which does make it a little easier. What was your first trip to the park like for you? Um, I remember that we walked the trails. I want to think it was during the Cherokee Cultural Celebration. So there were um, probably about 3,000 people there that day. Uh, there was you know, singing and drumming and dancing and storytelling. So there was a lot going on. Uh, but my husband and I took a little break from all that and walked one of the longer trails at the park, and it was really peaceful and lovely out there. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, it's just a beautiful little place. Did you find it to be as informative as you wanted it to be or thought it would be? No, no. And that's part of what I'm going to be doing in my residency. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2015, uh, some of the folks from the Center for Historic Preservation, where I have my assistantship through, they had gone over and done some new interpretive panels for the park. Um, the park is 40 years old this year, and it was very dated, the, the museum was very dated. And so, um, yeah, they did a few interpretive panels, but in my research, I've found a, a lot more that hasn't been talked about, about that place. Is there any interactive exhibit there or anything like that, or is it just text? Well, when I'm there this summer, I'm actually doing uh, like the whole costume living history kind of park interpretation. Mm-hmm. Um, and they do have a seasonal interpretive ranger that is going to be, he does a lot of stuff with um, like the atlatl and bow and arrow kind of stuff. But he's also going to be doing some blacksmithing mm-hmm. later in the summer. So um, there is some of that kind of stuff. Um, one of the things that um, I have done last year in a digital history tools kind of class mm-hmm. um was i did a well me and my team did a um a digital exhibit on the the eternal flame that's there so um we're hoping to to do more digital exhibits that we can put on a platform to demonstrate how the park is currently used by the cherokee mm-hmm. so What have you found out so far in your research that you think will enhance the visitor's knowledge and understanding of the park? Well, um, it's not really discussed at all, but there, um, after after the Cherokee began being rounded up at the uh, towards the end of May 1838, um, they or Red Clay became a concentration camp. There were 2,000 Cherokee held there for at least two and a half months prior to their removal. And we know that there were at least seven who died there. Um, the, the records are pretty sketchy. It's, you know, just bits and pieces, but that's the bits that we've been able to, to piece together. Did the white man keep any journals or anything like that? Of I'm his... trying to find them. You're trying to find them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's lots of reports. I mean, like army reports, because it was army officer or army personnel mm-hmm. that were guarding them. Um, but yeah, I, I'm still tr- I'm still looking. <laughs> <laughs> what about deeds? You looked into deeds. Oh my gosh, I've done so many deed searches. <laughs> <laughs> what did that tell you? Um, well, after removal, that piece of property had about. 
45 owners prior to the state purchasing it in the 70s. Um, it changed hands lots of times. It was mostly used for agricultural purposes, apart from the railroad corridor that was put through in 18, well, actually it's 1852 is when it passed by Red Clay, but it had been, they had already uh, determined that there was gonna be a railroad through there before um, removal. And in 1836 map, it shows exactly where they wanted to put the, the railroad. And that was one of the reasons they needed the Cherokee out, because the Cherokee did not want that. Did they have any other reasons for removing the Cherokee oh, besides the railroad? Sure, sure, sure. Um, well, I mean, the one that you hear about most often is that they had discovered gold in Dahlonega, Georgia. Um, there was also some gold discovered somewhere in East Tennessee, and I don't know it off the top of my head. But um, but also, you know, the, the rich planters out east had, you know, kind of ruined their land by... Um, you know, mono agriculture, essentially. And they, they needed... stripped the soil of all its nutrients. Exactly. Yeah. So they need a new land in uh, North Georgia and uh, that Tennessee Valley area is really fertile land. Mm. So um, they needed they needed the people that live there to be gone. To say nothing of the the white hegemony, the ethno ethnocentrism, uh, the uh, belief that the white man is superior to the Native American. Absolutely. Absolutely. We'll take a break right here. We'll be back in just a moment. This is MTSU on the Record. Specialized training in forensic science prepares tomorrow's professionals through the Forensic Institute for Research and Education, or FIRE. The Forensic Anthropology Search and Recovery Team assists law enforcement with skeletal remains at crime scenes. Legendary forensic scientists provide lectures free to the public, and high school students work realistic crime scenes each summer at our CSI MTSU camp. I'm Dr. Hugh Berryman, Director of Fire. For more details, visit mtsunews.com. The MTSU Department of Art has the newest facility for visual arts in the state with approximately 50,000 square feet of space, including high-tech computers and computer-driven equipment for multimedia, graphic design, printmaking, sculpture, painting, and ceramics. We feature a visiting artist lecture program and an exhibition program that exposes students to work by national and international artists. To find out more, visit mtsunews.com. Our guest is Danielle Shelton. She's a doctoral candidate in public history, uh, going for her dissertation, conducting research on Red Clay Historic State Park uh, near Cleveland, Tennessee, uh, site of the last Cherokee national government prior to the Trail of Tears. Um, lay people might not think there's really much more to say about the Trail of Tears, but that's really not true, is it? No, there's... Uh... There's a lot more to, to find out. Um, and Amy Costine, my supervisor over at the Center for Historic Preservation, she's the Trail of Tears historian there. Mm -hmm. um, we're, doing, we're always finding out more stuff. There's always little tidbits coming, coming out. And I'll tell you, um, last year I had actually gone to the Cherokee National Archives in Tahlequah, Oklahoma, and um, met with the archivist and um, was disappointed because... I thought that there were going to be things that he was going to pull for me, and there weren't. And um, he pretty much told me that they had only cataloged like 1% of their entire collection in their archives. So um, he was hoping to, you know, take care of that. He was new to the job. Um, I guess they maybe had never had a proper archivist before. 
So he has a huge burden ahead of him to, to rectify that situation. And I, everything that we know after 1836 could be rewritten after they do that. Is that a state facility or a private facility? It's a Cherokee National facility. Okay, so it's owned by the tribe. Yes, yes. Uh, did you conduct some uh, oral histories? And if so, what did you get out of them? Actually, I have not conducted oral histories. But you're going to? Um, possibly, yeah, possibly. Mm-hmm. Um, the things that uh, I have listened to, I've seen some of the oral histories that people have done, mm-hmm. uh, primarily about an African-American church that was located just right off of the park property. Um, the, the congregation began there in the 1870s after um, emancipation. And uh, they built a church there on a white guy's property. And that piece of property, and one of the things I learned in deed search just the other week, um, <laughs> that piece of property changed hands several times. It was eventually bought by a, um, a big corporation called the Standard Growers Exchange, which is still in existence um, because they farm peaches in that part of the area, mm-hmm. that part of the world. So... Um, uh, but they built their church there. The present building was built there in 1902, even though someone had deeded them property a couple miles away in 1884. Mm-hmm. I still haven't figured out exactly why they chose the site that they didn't own as opposed to the one that they did. But in 1923, they put that church on uh, log rollers and used mules and moved that about four miles to where it currently sits. It's still there. I just did a... Um, uh, preservation plan for it over the weekend mm-hmm. for that building. So even though it's not about the Cherokee, this specifically, all of this information is fair game and part and parcel of the research. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, even though, yes, this was a Cherokee site, the Cherokee had over 1,500 enslaved people of African descent when uh, they were when they had their census in 1835. So those folks went with them. Um, and their descendants are now the Cherokee freedmen. So um, there were certainly uh, enslaved people there, and some of their descendants are still in that community. So um, and there was intermarriage and yeah, babies. And absolutely. What was it like being a slave of a Cherokee versus being a slave of the white man? Well, you know, if you re- do a lot of reading, <laughs> you'll see that it, it was kind of... Um, It was usually thought to be better to be owned by uh, a native person Mm -hmm. as opposed to a Euro-American. However, that did begin to change. Um, You see that if you go down to, um, oh, uh, down into North Georgia to the Van House at Spring Place. Mm -hmm. Um, It's also called Diamond Hill. It's a state park down there in Georgia. Um, You see like this beautiful mansion that was built by Joseph Van in the 1820s. And um, unfortunately, by that particular time, the the planters in the Cherokee Nation, folks who own more than 20 slaves, they had really started to take on the um, culture of their white neighbors. So they were as cruel to their enslaved people as white people were at that point. But, you know, the folks that only owned a couple probably had much more familiar and even familial relationships with those folks. So the fact that the Cherokee were mistreated themselves didn't keep them from owning slaves and 
from the same kind of ethnocentrism that the white man imposed upon them. No, not at all. I mean, in and, you know, to be fair, one of the things that the U.S. government kept telling them to do was that they had to act like white people to be civilized in order to keep their land. So they were just mirroring what they were seeing. But when they acted like the white man, they didn't get, get to keep their land anyway. No, they didn't. It was purely racist. Time for another break. We'll be back. This is MTSU on the record. The mission of the June Anderson Center for Women and Non-Traditional Students is to provide education, advocacy, direct services, outreach, and programming for the MTSU campus and surrounding community on gender-related issues. The center also assists older students who are trying to balance work, college, and family. It also sponsors a monthly legal clinic, career brown bag series, book club, and a newsletter twice a year. For all of the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The Intercultural and Diversity Affairs Center helps to promote awareness and understanding of the wide variety of cultures represented at MTSU. The center provides information, referrals, and resources. Additionally, IDAC tries to make students from different cultures feel welcome and comfortable on campus so they can have every opportunity to fulfill their academic, social, and personal potential. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. We're talking about Red Clay Historic State Park, which is in Cleveland, Tennessee. Uh, That was the site of the last Cherokee national government prior to the Trail of Tears, the uh, white man's forced migration of the Cherokee Indians beginning in 1838. Our guest is Danielle Shelton. She's a doctoral candidate in public history from Chattanooga who's doing uh, research into that area. Can you tell us anything about what uh, a Cherokee government council in that area would have been like about, you know, how it's how, how it functioned, what the proceedings were like? Well, um, at the time that Red Clay became a, a, a site of significance, when it became the essentially the capital of the Cherokee Nation in 1832, um, they were in crisis. They were already... Um, uh, they'd kind of been kicked out of Georgia for the most part at this point. At least they, they would be in prison for having a meeting at all, any meeting. Um, so that's why they came to Red Clay was, mm-hmm. was it was safe. And it was literally right across the border. You can throw a rock mm-hmm. <laughs> and hit Georgia from the Red Clay site. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, when they would have their, um, their council meetings, um, and a council meeting wasn't just like, hey, we're going to meet at Tuesday at five o'clock. It was something that happened usually in the fall after the crops were in. And it would it could be up to two months long. So um, by this point, the architecture that the Cherokee had traditionally um, built, the way, the, the way that they had built things had changed to mirror more of what white people had. And so instead of like the traditional round, huge council houses that would hold hundreds of people, what they had was an 18 by 30 uh, rectangular building with open sides. And so like the actual council members would sit inside, um, but the walls were completely open so people could stand around and listen. And according to what I've read um, from, you know, white folks that were there observing, um, like the, the Cherokee, they, they were there, they were focused, um, and 
you know, if you go to a meeting like that today, you probably can't hear anything if there's not a microphone. But apparently the Cherokee were all there and they were listening because, I mean, this was very important stuff. They were going to lose their home and they were trying to do whatever they could to fight that. And the way that they did that was through the courts as best they could. This was not just uh, the elders, the tribal elders. No, this was everybody. The entire uh, group that was living there was uh, participating. Well, not everybody, everybody. I mean, but you would have, like, the largest one was in 1837, and there was 4,000 Cherokee there, Mm -hmm. and around 300 Army personnel, and I don't know how many enslaved folks were there, but there would have been some there, too. So it was a very diverse place. Hard to have any substantive meetings about governance when you've got these soldiers staring down your throat. I would think so. I think that would be kind of intimidating. But supposedly they weren't there uh, to keep them from meeting. They were there to make sure they didn't have an uprising. Mm -hmm. Um, But who knows what it looked like almost 200 years ago. Were the women allowed to have any say? Now, traditionally, yes, but by this point in their history, um, they did have a say, but they did not sit in council. Because by this point, it was more about defense and warfare, and that was the province of the male? Well, there was certainly that, and, you know, um, white legislators and governors wouldn't talk to women about things, Mm -hmm. so they had to send men to do that kind of stuff. How did they communicate with the Cherokee? Did they learn Cherokee language? Did the Cherokee learn English? Well, um, the Cherokee learned English for the most part. Um, And by this particular point in their history, most of their leaders um, were the products of, you know, white fathers and Cherokee mothers because they're... um, at this, at this point in their history, they had always been matrilineal, meaning that if your mother was Cherokee, you were Cherokee. So it didn't matter. There was no blood quantum, which is what they have now. You know, you're only so what so much percentage of Cherokee blood or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's not how they did it back then. That's not how they traditionally did it at all. Um, that was something that white people put on them. What about folks who, who still live in the area? You know, people... These days, it's fashionable to claim that you're X percent Cherokee or X percent Sioux or sure. <laughs> X percent Navajo or something, you know, because your mother told you that your great great grandfather was such and such and all that. It's not necessarily documentable in every case. Sometimes it's just stories passed down from generation to generation. But to to what extent do you still have any people who uh, have documentable Cherokee lineage living, still living in that area. Is is oh, there a big participation in uh, in uh, the life of Native Americans? I know that there's a powwow held every year in Tennessee. Yeah, so um, actually one of the park rangers is a member of the Cherokee Nation. Um, and the eastern band of the Cherokee are only like 150 miles away. Mm-hmm. So um, they come out uh, every year for the Cherokee Cultural Celebration, we had the uh, Remember the Removal Riders, which are a group of bicycle bicyclists from the Cherokee Nation and the Eastern Band of the Cherokee. Um, they all meet over in Cherokee, and then they go to New Echota, which was the capital f- prior to um, Red Clay. Mm-hmm. And uh, they cycle from there to Red Clay, and then 
along the trail for over a thousand miles, stopping at, um, you know, places like Red Clay, you know, actual Trail of Tears sites, as well as the unmarked graves of their ancestors Mm -hmm. and um, learn their history all along the way. Um, What do you want to do with your degree when you graduate? I mean, that public history degree track prepares people for a lot of different types of careers. You know... I still don't know what I want to do when I grow up. Um, (laughs) But I figure probably something in heritage tourism um, or museums or, you know, consulting, doing um, historic preservation. Would it necessarily have to do with Native Americans? No, not necessarily. I have my master's degree in medieval history. (laughs) (laughs) That's quite a switch. Yeah, it was a big switch, but nobody really wants to hire you for medieval history. <laughs> um, actually, I didn't do that here. You I did, didn't? No, I, I went to the University of Arkansas for my master's degree. Okay. Do, uh, do you go to the annual Renaissance Festival at all? You know, I haven't because every year that we've been here, um, I've had something going on. Where are you from originally? From Arkansas. From where in Arkansas? I grew up down in southeast Arkansas, right on the Mississippi River. Mm-hmm. Uh, but most of my family have moved up to northwest Arkansas now. So. Okay. <laughs> So you do a great deal of traveling. I do. I do. <laughs> <laughs> what does your husband think of your um, fascination with uh, oh, he history? Loves it. He loves it. Is he into history, too? He's a librarian, so um, he's like a techie librarian. So uh, in our marriage vows, he actually had a line in there about loving my, his um, um, impromptu history lessons. So... Um, <laughs> At which point all our friends and family were died laughing because they were like, yeah, she gives those a lot. Um, (laughs) Well, since that phrase can be interpreted any number of ways, we'll just leave that where it is and wish you the best of luck with your continued path toward your dissertation. Danielle Shelton, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you so much. We'll be right back. The Middle Tennessee Writing Project is a program that fosters the effective teaching of writing to students in kindergarten through high school. The project hosts annual summer institutes where teacher participants teach and learn from each other effective techniques of teaching writing. In addition, the project sponsors summer writers camps for youngsters. MTSU is one of 185 sites of the National Writing Project and one of only two in Tennessee. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Women in Science and Engineering, or WISE, helps college women prepare for and become involved in science-related careers. WISE nurtures women's interest in these fascinating and critical fields and provides mentoring and networking opportunities. The group's main goal is to assure women of their importance in all scientific and technical fields and to promote equal opportunity and treatment of women in science. I'm Dr. Judith Iriarte Gross, WISE advisor. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. Gina Fan has the middle moment. MTSU President Sidney McPhee encouraged our Board of Trustees during their recent summer meeting to join the MTSU community in the university's summer reading program and celebrate the power of the written word. The MTSU summer reading program uses the practice of a common reading to create a unifying intellectual experience for our entering class of freshmen. Since 2002, MTSU has chosen a single book with an exceptional message to share with incoming students, with our faculty, our staff, and have great participation from the high schools and the Murfreesboro community. 
We believe that this tradition communicates the importance of reading and intellectual discussion as the basis for our academic community. That's MTSU on the record. I'm Jenna Logue. Thanks for listening. MTSU on the record, a news and information program about Middle Tennessee State University, is produced by the university's marketing and communications office, which is solely responsible for its content. Read more about MTSU at our website, mtsunews.com. Podcasts of this program are available at mtsunews.com and on iTunes.